Shamai Green Man Podcast. Welcome to the Green Man Podcast. You're listening to the Green Man Podcast. It's the Green Man Podcast. Most of you will know this next gentleman. You might know him from his journalism back in the day, or more recently. Uh, you might know him from his Six Music programme, which he hot-footed it down from this morning. But we're here to talk about his books today. We were trying to tot up how many he's written uh, backstage, and I think we think it might be 11. He wasn't quite sure. So please welcome Stuart McConey and his 11th book, The Full English, Stuart McConey. Yo. Hello, everyone. Are you here today largely, well, we'll talk about various things, but largely talk about the full English. J.B. Priestley published, well, yours is called A Journey in Search of Country and Its People. His English journey was 1933. Um, how did you come to Priestley? I was introduced to J.B. Priestley in a very odd and brilliant way. I was introduced to him by Barry Cryer, the great Baz Cryer, and Graham Garden in a curry house in Birmingham. we just done, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, um, and... They were chatting over the poppadoms about, and they got to know about J.B. Priestley. And I said, oh, I don't really know Priestley's work. And they kind of looked at me with a mixture of kind of pity and contempt and, um, and said, you don't know Priestley's work? And I said, no. And they said, right, you've got to find you, you know, you'd love him. You'd love him. He was a polymath. He was a Renaissance man. You know, your politics are probably close to his. So they said, start off with The Good Companions, which they described as a great big armchair of a book, which it is if you know it. And I just got, I became absorbed in him. I became fascinated with this man who was good at so many different things. You know, playwright, sociologist, entertainer, novelist, dramatist. And um, yeah, and I, just, and I just grew to love him. And, and a couple of times during the years, people suggested to me, there's a book of his called English Journey that you really should think about redoing. Which is, it's just that. It's him rambling around Britain, in England in the 1930s, taking the temperature of the country as he saw it. And it, oftentimes in the last few years, I've thought, yeah, that, that's quite a neat idea. But I thought, really, is there any pressing reason why? But I thought, in the last couple of years, yes, there is a couple of good reasons why, not least the twin ruptures of Brexit and COVID. So it seemed like the time was right now, um, and the Red Wall stuff, and the, the, the weird and febrile state of our politics. I was, I was sort of surprised that you you came to it in that way. I, I came to it following Orwell's Road to Wigan Pier. Right. I should say to people that Stuart and I are both from Wigan. We're both from the same town. Yes. Uh, yes. So, so the two of us can have all of you. Yeah. <laughs> Easily. I'm joking, of course. <laughs> I'm not. Um, Orwell, <laughs> so Orwell, we're very used to people turning up in Wigan. Oh, yeah. Creating the Road to Wigan Pier. But why did why have they not done that so much? I, I think with I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a it's a very different piece of work to Orwell's. Really, it's much more warm. It's much more human. It's funnier. But having said that, Orwell wasn't setting out to write. As I always say this to people, he wasn't setting out to write a brochure extolling the virtues of Wigan as a mini break. You know, he wasn't criticizing the tone as much as the economic and political conditions that put it in the state it was in. But his is much darker. And much more, they were funny, Orwell and Priestley. You'd think that they would have gotten on famously because they're both men of the left. 
But such was Orwell's hatred of Soviet communism. He thought Priestley was, was a commie. And he basically went to the government and said, you want to watch that, J.B. Priestley? He's too left-wing. So they didn't really hit it off him. And also, they're very different men. One's the son of... One's a Bradford ex-textile worker, and one is an, an old Etonian public schoolboy, you know. So they were very different kinds of men. But I don't think they're massively different under the skin, really. They're politics. They're both centrist, centre-leftist, I'd call them. Um, yeah, so I don't know why. Road to Wigginpi is more famous... But English Journey is has its absolute admirers, yeah. Could you talk us a little bit through your your journey plan? Your what's your itinerary? Well, I just followed his journey absolutely. I just followed his journey to the letter, um, starting in Southampton, going up through Bristol and Swindon towards um, the Midlands via the Cotswolds and the Potteries, then the Midlands, then going northwards through Yorkshire and Lancashire and upwards to the, not the far northeast and then back down via Lincoln and Norfolk. So quite an eccentric itinerary. He doesn't go to the Lake District, he doesn't go to Cornwall, he doesn't go to London. But I think his idea was to take the temperature of largely urban Britain with this one deviation to like Norwich and the Cotswolds. And it was an enormous success. Back in 1930, whenever it was it came out, 34 was it, it came out. At one point, well, it was an enormous success. Uh, it knocked P.G. Woodhouse's What Ho Jeeves from the top of the charts, which would have really pleased him because he couldn't stand P.G. Woodhouse. He thought he was one of those blokes who write as if they've never left school. Which I know what he means. <laughs> but, um, no, he, yeah, it was enormously popular because he's, he's a hit beforehand, Good Companions, had been massive. So he was enormously popular and thus by the intelligentsia, mistrusted, because he was so successful. And they were utter snobs. Virginia Woolf was horrible about him. Um, lots of people, you know, and he fell out of fashion. He's, he fell out of fashion for years. I've just made a Radio 4 documentary about just that, called Whatever Happened to J.B. Priestley. When he, in, the, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, he was never not on the television, and the 70s. He was massively popular. He would turn up talking about anything because he was... We'll make, we may go on to this. He was the last of a dying breed, I think, the, the public intellectual. But then he became very unfashionable after, like, the satire boom. You know, the sort of... That was the week that was very much public school satire boom. He fell out of favour because he'd be seen as a stereotype, but working-class northerner, you know, speak as a fine northerner. He kind of invented that, I think. I think the, pattern, the, the thing we had, it all came out again recently with Park, he sadly passing. That stereotype of the speak as a fine Yorkshireman, he kind of invented that, I think, you know. But he was supremely clever, very well read, interested in a lot of other things than just the things you'd think. I mean, he, he loved English things. He was deeply rooted in loving English things. But he was into science fiction. He loved Monty Python. He was into lots and lots of other things. So, but yeah, he, he just kind of fell out of favour, which is maybe why, to come round about to it again, why, why not many people know an English journey. But I just followed in his footsteps exactly. Uh, and switch, which is great. He gave the book its own narrative straight away. And you followed his modes of transport? Did it all well? Kind of. Well, no, not exactly, because he did a lot of his in a chauffeured Daimler. <laughs> because he'd become a very rich man and did his in a chauffeured Daimler. I uh, did mine completely on public transport, um, including the beginning section on the Megabus. Yay! 
that most proletarian and levelling of transport. I got the megabus from Birmingham to Southampton. It was all right, actually. But the man, as I say in the book, my seat wouldn't recline at all. And I didn't have a little table or anything like that. But the man in front of me, his table, his seat reclined so much that I described him as lolling in my lap like a courtesan in one of those Montmartre brothel studies by Manet, you know. Um, but it was, it was all right. I did it nearly all by public transport. I did all of it by public transport. It all, it all worked out swimmingly. And the places you stayed? Should we confront that early? I stayed in a variety of places. I know what you're going to say now. In Southampton, I stayed in a super posh place that I didn't realise was so posh when I booked it. That's my excuse anyway. But I stayed wherever, um, wherever I could. I stayed in Airbnbs. I stayed in little hotels. Yeah, I just um, you know, made my own, you know, out of the meagre advance. I, uh, you know, did that. But, but it was, you know, but the quite easy research compared to those people like yourself who go off to other countries doing research or... You know, those people who do those books where they go, where they live with the Mujahideen for 10 years, or they go around Peru on a cement mixer or something like that. This was quite easy, really. I went to Stoke and had some oat cakes, you know. <laughs> Someone has to do it. Where did you not stay in Liverpool, Stuart? I didn't stay as you, at a place that you know, at the Adelphi Hotel, which is the, sim- I know, it's the symbol. It's almost that you wouldn't have to be that much of a, novelist to turn the Adelphi Hotel into a symbol for Britain itself, for England itself. This kind of faded majesty, once brilliant, once one of the best hotels in the world, glamorous, state of the art. No, nothing in it works, you know. Rather like Britain, you know, the taps don't work, the lifts don't work. I stayed in it once, I know you've stayed in it, I stayed in it once and I bought all new toiletries because I didn't have any when I went so I got a new soap bag full of razors, blah, blah, blah. Came back to our room at the end of the day's filming. They'd all gone. I went downstairs. I said, all my toiletries have gone. And they said, well, what, what, where did you leave them? I said, in the bathroom. They said, oh, well, we'll have thrown them away. <laughs> I was like, why? Should I have put my toothpaste in the safe? You know. But anyway, it's, it is. It's, it's a fa- There's a lot of them like that. You, you stayed in the Adelphi, haven't you? Oh, yeah, the Adelphi. I mean, I think, I can't remember if it was the Adelphi or the Britannia in Manchester. I think they're part of the same chain. And it had no windows whatsoever. No, no. I don't know how they did that even in this hotel. The Britannia Hotel in Manchester is a rum, rum, rum place. Never stay at the Britannia Hotel in Manchester. What The BBC used to put people up there a lot. And one time, Radio 4 were having a discussion show with a very elderly Oxford academic on. Very respected, but elderly Oxford academic and they put him up at the Britannia. And they rang the Britannia first and said, Professor Linton Jones is coming. He's a very respected academic. He's rather old and frail. Could you make sure you look after him? And the Britannia said, yes, of course. And when the professor got to his room, there was a woman in it. Because that's what the Britannia Hotel assumed, can you look after him meant. The bookings for the uh, Britannia now go through the roof, I would imagine. <laughs> so, on, so this journey, as you say, it's post-Brexit. Well, I mean, Brexit's not... It, yes, it, yeah, well, it, it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving Brexit, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Theoretically. No, it was yeah. post-Brexit vote. Post-Covid. Yeah. Post-Covid, post-Brexit. So it's, as Britain, England really is just emerging, lots of places were locked down. It felt like, coming, it felt like wandering around a country that was just coming out of a war, which I guess in some ways it was. You know... Things shuttered and closed, and you wondered, is that ever going to open again? Felt like a kind of blitzed country, but things were just getting back to normal. 
And one of my visits in there is to Dudley Zoo, which is fantastic. I went to Dudley Zoo on like a Tuesday afternoon in April. Well, normally it'd be quite busy, but oh my God, because no one in Britain could go anywhere. Everyone had decided to go to Dudley Zoo. Everyone who lived in the Midlands had decided to go to Dudley Zoo. And it was, it was hilarious, you know, watching these. And they were determined to bring the same set of values they would take to Marbella to Dudley Zoo. So there were these fantastically glamorous young women drinking pints of gaseous, urinaceous-looking lager in plastic glasses, gazing idly at a Sumatran tiger, you know. <laughs> this actually brings me on to one of the things that I wanted to mention. It seems to crop up quite a few times, Dudley Zoo, or I think it's in Liverpool, or was it Rope Makers Walk? Uh, the, the, yes, the Rope Makers Quarter of Liverpool, yeah. Yeah, and, and this idea that the, the England that you found, in contrast to Priestley, is an England of, of consumption and pleasure, quite a yeah. pursuit of pleasure rather than um, rather than manufacturing or production. Yeah, he, we don't make things anymore. I mean, and I go on about this a lot. And at some point, I'm going to have to get over the fact that we don't make things anymore. It's gone, you know, it's a shame, but it's gone. We just sell one another sandwiches now, you know. So we're uh, a clearing house for every despicable oligarch in the world. No, you know what I mean? That's what we do now. We were a financial clearinghouse. That was unashamedly what the ambition of several successive... Get down off the old soapbox, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean. That's what they decided to do. Let's not do an honest day's work making stuff. Let's, let's launder all the world's grubby money through London instead. Um, so, yeah, Priest, but Priestley found a country that was very depressed and wasn't really making anything anyway. But he would have been amazed, I think, if you took him to Salford Quays now or Liverpool docks and these places that he describes as, like Liverpool, he describes as being spectral, like fog and the odd man in a long overcoat, you know, like a Joy Division video, wandering through the fog. Now, he'd be amazed that it's all these bars and high-end hotels, and that's, that's a great thing, you know. It's a pity we don't just make anything as well, I don't think, you know. How else do you think the, the country has changed since Priestley, say? How much did you notice? Oh, I, I think Priestley would find the England of today, not the Wales of today, maybe, I don't know enough about Wales, but he would find the England of today unrecognisable in a terrible way that would make him weep. He, there was wrong, things wrong with the country then, but I think he'd find two things incredible. That it just doesn't function anymore as a country. And I think this is incredible. That we, we've gotten used to the fact that you just think, will my train run? Probably not. Will I get an ambulance? Probably not. Will I get a doctor's appointment this year? Maybe not. He, he wouldn't, he then, even in the 30s, wouldn't have believed that, and certainly you wouldn't have believed it post-1945 when we'd had the most progressive government we ever had, who we thought had ushered in a system that would last forever, but has been systematically dismantled, hasn't it, for the last 50 years. So now but things just don't work anymore. There's one point in the book where I go around Coventry's Transport Museum, and they're talking about the heyday of Coventry's car manufacture, and a lady there said to her son, oh, we used to be great, we could be great again, and it really depressed me. I thought, what is this about being great? Well, why do we want to be great? How about being sane? How about being competent? How about being healthy and happy and normal? You know. It's like, you know, the Norwegians don't have any about being great. They just know that their country works for the benefit of its citizens. Not like us. And the other thing that would annoy him as well, he'd say, are you still voting for these lot? You know, the, are the same, the same individual, that class of person, the same kind of eaten, educated public school boy was running the country when I was a kid. 
are you still buying for them? What is the matter with you? And I feel that more and more. What would it take, you know? We are far too deferential. Deference is built into England at every level, and it's got to go. It has got to go. I don't mean by that us all going around in blue surge suits on little bicycles with a red book of Chairman Mao. I don't mean that. I always say this. I do not want the state to make my pop music or my curries or my clothes. I don't want the state to do that. I'm very happy to let private entrepreneurs do that. But I do think the state should run the schools, the jails, the hospitals, the power supply, the transport, certain things the state should do. You know what I mean? That's not insanity. It's like we are the only country... With the, I mentioned a bit, I think, I think I mentioned it in the book. Um, I was once in, in Switzerland with the Stone Roses. And it was just as the Tories were privatising uh, the trains, which wasn't, wasn't Thatcher, as many people think. It was major. It was one of the last and most insane of their privatisations. And a Swiss businessman was in our carriage, and he was a bit annoyed with them at first because they were smoking and getting a bit leery. But eventually, by their not inconsiderable charm, they won him over, and we ended up drinking with him and chatting. And he said to me, you are privatising your railways. And it's fair to say that the Stone Roses hadn't really been keeping abreast of transport policy. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, well, yeah, we are. And he said, well, he said, look around you, Switzerland, the most capitalist country in the world. Our name is a byword for capitalism. The gnomes of Zurich, Swiss banks, we are a byword for capitalism. We don't have private railways. No sensible country has private railways. And I thought, yeah, you're right. No sensible country does. We've stopped being a sensible country, you know. It seems to me, and you, you touch on this as well, it seems to me that we've lost a certain mobility that we did have, and you touch on this. It's actually in the section where you're talking about the Beatles and about the documentary Get Back and how you watched it, and it reminded you, I'm just going to read your, your quote, um, it was a reminder of how vibrant and dynamic England once was, that these, these four boys could rise up to become these stars. Yeah, yeah and Priestley too. An England that's kind of in danger of disappearing, I think, were working-class people who hadn't gone to the right schools, who didn't have networks of familial connections, could succeed on sheer talent alone. Shakespeare's a good example, Priestley's a good example, the Beatles are an excellent example, you know what I mean? Um, of, of a country that could produce that kind of vibrant working-class talent without you could get by just on talent alone. And I think that's why I think Get Back, I mean, certainly made me fall in love with the Beatles again to the degree that my next book is going to be Beatle-related. But I just think it was more than just being about the Beatles and pop music. You suddenly saw a country in the 1960s that looked full of possibilities and fun and energy. And that is no, you know, that's what came after, that's because of the post-war settlement. That's because of the Atlee government. That's because of the things they put in place. That's because of the nation saying, we, after the war, we're going to do things slightly differently. But we've gone backwards. We have, we have gone backwards. You know, power has gone into the fewer hands again. And it, it seems weird to me that we've let it go backwards in that way. But anyway, but yeah, I, I do think that, we don't know what Priestley thought of the Beatles at all. We know what Paul McCartney thought of a Priestley adaptation of Iris Murdoch, he said. He told John Lennon that it was the crappiest thing he'd ever seen. So I don't know. I think Priestley would have quite liked the Beatles. I'm sure he, I'm sure. he liked popular art for popular people. He was a kind of Beatle. He was a kind of Beatles of literature, Priestley, you know. So that brings us back to that sort of popular intellectualism that we yeah. also seem to have lost. I I feel a little bit more hopeful, I think, than you do in this book about that. And that's largely because of podcasts. And I kind of feel that 
right now we're in a, a beautiful moment of very nuanced conversation and okay. I think about something like even like the rest is politics which is a sort of long form podcast in which you know Rory Stewart and, and Alison Campbell talk and d- disagree so it's not yes. soundbitey because I feel the soundbite is part of what stamped on the public I, I think you're right I I think you're right. That, that's a very interesting, the popularity of that show and the rest is history with Dominic Sandbrook and Tom Holland, who again mildly disagree. Sandbrook's more right-wing than Holland, I think. And so, but, but again, I think you're right. I think those, the popularity of those podcasts suggests something quite interesting happening in our politics. Um, but we'll see whether that's borne out, you know. Um, I agree with you there, and perhaps I hadn't taken that into account or realised it enough when I wrote the book. I was more talking about the discourse as was carried on through magazine and newspaper articles, and particularly social media. Whereas I, I say in the book, Priestley was a, was a public, what I'd call a public intellectual, well, what many people would call a public intellectual. You know, he, he offered his opinions in an, in an intelligent and engaging way on a variety of things. So during the war, he did these things called the postscripts. Every Sunday night, the nation would crowd around the wireless, that first part of the Second World War, to listen to what Priestley said. And he didn't always say the most morale-boosting things. That's why Churchill, who loathed him, got the BBC to get rid of him. The BBC came in into pressure from a right-wing government. That would never happen now, would it? Um, um, so, pre- so they got rid of him. But during that year and a half that he was on, millions of people listened to him. And um, he told it like it was, but in a very engaging way. Like, and he addressed people in a way they understood. Like, he didn't talk about the Nazis, uh, disgusting though the Nazis' ideology was. What he said about the Nazis, he said, if you let the Nazis win this war, you'll find that the laziest loudmouth in your workshop has been given rise and freedom to kick you up and down the street. And he was, bang on. That's exactly right. And that chimed with people. All, you know, the, the guy in your workshop, the woman in your street, the guy in your workshop, whoever, who's always the snidey one, who doesn't work hard enough, who's always mouthing off. He'd have been the sort of person who would rise up in an Nazi government, you know, the kind of squealer, the lick spittle, you know. And amazingly, not only is he still knocking about, we seem to vote for them. It's incredible, you know what I mean? So, but Priestley, I think, talked about things like that. But I just bemoaned the fact that instead of people like Priestley, relatively centrist people, sort of seeing both sides of an argument, maybe, or presenting, that you got instead, a ca- the phony culture wars. I don't know what you think, Laura, but I think to a degree the culture wars are phony. I think it's a phony war. It's a phony war stoked on the left and the right by people who have a vested interest in keeping it going because it pays their wages. And that goes for people on the left and the right. I'm afraid it goes for Owen Jones and Nigel Farage. They both need to keep that war going. And we could opt out if we wanted. We could say we're not joining in with this phony war, but sadly people get, get sucked in, you know. But I think it is largely a phony war. Um, but yeah, and I think you're right. Maybe, the, maybe, the, maybe podcasts are a more nuanced way forward. There's, um, there's a book I recommend to nearly everybody, probably everyone I know in this room, but uh, it's called The Intellectual Life of the British Working Classes. Do you know that one? No, I don't think I do. It's David Rose. I'll, I'll show you later. Great, yeah. But, um, but it just, it really shows the lie to this idea that the, the people who we think of as, as sort of that we've dumbed down or whatever are not exactly how they've been cast Absolutely. at all. And I think that it's a really similar thing with the, with the culture wars at the moment. We're trying to make it seem as if everyone's a bit stupid in the middle. Oh, yeah. I've had people talk to me... I, I used to write kind of com- people's comedy script show, TV script shows. I remember once writing a gag for Graham Norton back when he was doing like 100 Greatest Shows on Channel 4. And I wrote a gag for him and the producer said to me, very funny this joke, but will they get it? 
and he said, you know, he said, well, gonna, are they going to get it in Hull or in Wigan? I said, well, I'm from Wigan, so I'm one person in Wigan's going to get it. Yeah, you know what I mean? And um, that's, I have to say this, that's why I prefer, much prefer radio to television. The wages are minuscule compared to telly, but I prefer radio to telly for one of the reasons is people who make radio programmes just make good programmes that they listen to. A lot of people make telly programmes who never dream of watching the programmes they make because it's for the great unwashed over there. They like it. It's all, they don't know any better. I think that attitude really does prevail in our culture a lot. Um, yeah, I do. And I think you just, you know, you said people do good instead of people doing good work. And, uh, oh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think it's assumed that people are thicker than they are. No, 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 no better, yeah. And easily distracted. Um, there are some areas you disagree with Priestley. He yeah. did have some slightly dubious opinions on things. I'm going to say the Irish. Yeah, he's, he, goes to, he goes to Liverpool and he's horrible about the Irish community there in a way that doesn't really chime well with the rest of his views. I mean, he's a man of his time. You'd have to say that. And I know this is not an excuse. It is a problem. It's a problem for all of us. Do we let people off who belong to different times? I just think maybe he was guilty of that slightly glib, low-level racism that was the tenor of the times. You know, I, I, I think to a degree, Priestley was just guilty of this like, casual, glancing, unthinking racism not sexism so much. I get the impression he was, in the nicest sense of the word, a woman's man, you know. Um, but he, but he, he, he was guilty of that. He thought the Irish had sort of... He, he thought, he thought, but basically, he thought they were lazy. He was thought that they, they were enfeebling the Liverpool culture. And that's probably the most problematic section of the book. That and when he talks about, I think, being in Chinatown, and he says something about, I should really have spoken to one, one of these people, shouldn't I? And I think, yeah, you should have, really. You know what I mean? But he, I, I'm not going to excuse him for that. That's a mistake. All I would say in his defence is that I think he was a product of his times, which were, sadly, quite sexist and racist, yeah. Did he at any moment say anything about the Welsh? Um, I don't think Priestley does say much about the Welsh. Um, he, and he doesn't even resort to stereotype, you know. He doesn't even resort to land of song or anything like that. I think he just doesn't. He just, well, he, he doesn't come, does he? For some reason, he decided not to come. Yeah, but anyway, more fool him, eh? Keeping for us national identity or parts of national identity. I wonder what keeps drawing you back to that pool. Well, yeah, I think it's time I took a break, which is why I'm going to do for my next book, because um, I can't keep doing it. But for this one, as I say, be because I thought the time was right to do it, but you go out into England and you find lots of lovely people, but you do see that it's changed and you see a certain... I mean, most of the places I went, I had a really good time, but some places were very melancholy places. I mean, I'll leave you to read the book and find out what they were. Well, they were Longton in Stockholm, Trent and Boston in Lincolnshire. But to, to name two of them, but I detected a massive unhappiness and tension in the air all the time. That thing's due to lots of reasons. And I also think anybody who can pinpoint those reasons really quickly is a fool and a liar. I try and encourage that kind of stuff in my book. Things, things are complicated. Like you said, things are more nuanced than you think. And there's never... Again, the phony culture wars have encouraged us to go, no, those people there are the problem. No, those people there are the problem. So you shouldn't let them talk, you know. Um, has the geography changed substantially? I mean, sort of even, I'm, I'm thinking about the layout of a town. I'm thinking about, you and I have spoken before about architecture and, and the influence that it has on, on the people who live in a community. Did you notice a massive shift in that? Um, I noticed that our cities are resurgent in a great way. You know what I mean? Like some cities I didn't know... Some, some ones that feel very vi vibrant and youthful and dynamic, like Leicester and Coventry, both of which I loved. Uh, I thought there was a real optimistic vibe in those places. I thought they looked, you know, a lot of it felt like university campuses, which is a good thing. 
They felt diverse in every sense of the word. They felt forward-looking. I really liked them. The towns, less so. I mean, unless you're fortunate enough to have a town like Crickhowell, but a lot of English towns are nothing like Crickhowell, you know, and you get a sense of that, whoever's fault it is, that thing about the left-behind nature is real. It is real. Now, whose fault it is, we can argue a long time about that and what you do about it, but I think Lisa Nandy is right, MP for our hometown. Lisa Nandy's right when she says Britain's becoming divided, not between north and south, not between England and Wales, maybe, but between city and town. You know, city dwellers and city, the whole vibe about cities, city dwellers are younger uh, and are, are more progressive. Or, uh, that's not to criticise town dwellers, but towns feel different and not always in a good way. You know, some of the towns I went to did feel like they've just, you know, they have been neglected. They really have been neglected. And I think the next government of whatever stripe, um, I hope people like Lisa and Andy are going to do something about regenerating towns. Yeah, I don't care who gets in next. I'm completely politically impartial because it would be wrong of me to abuse my position. Well, that's a shame, Stuart, because I was <laughs> <laughs> I was about to mention the early on. It actually gave me hope. So I was carrying this hope through the book. Okay. There's a bit where you talk about how important J.B. Priestley was. You quote Tony Benn saying that J.B. Priestley shaped the political thinking of a whole generation and how English journey really ha contributed to Labour coming to power again? I think that the, 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 ma the massive sea change that was the 45 general election, which I know I'm slightly romantic about, but I do think there was a, mo a glorious moment for this country in that short space time. And for this country, meaning Britain, we not only defeated Nazism and then rebuilt our country, but then rebuilt a country that was a shining example to the world of how to run a civilised country, you know, with the National Health Service and all the other things it did. Um, but... Um, yeah, pre there's, I think something's contributed to a national mood. Uh, the Jarrow March was one, I think. I think people were genuinely shocked to see the, the Jarrow Marches um, when I did that book. When, when the Jarrow Marches arrived in places like Luton and Edgeware, people genuinely did not know other people were having it that bad because not all of England was, you know. So, and, and I do think Priestley's broadcast during the Second World War and his writings and Inspector Calls came out in 1945. Um, I do think that it contributed to a mood of people being desperate for change and hungry for a kind of change. The great Frank Cottrell Boyce FCB talks about it. Sometimes, somewhere you feel there is a hunger for decency. I just think we can get that back, you know what I mean? A hunger for decency. You know, not necessarily to be politically partisan, but just to be able to look at people and go, you're not right, you're not decent, you're not fit to govern. We need, you know, some more decent people, you know, in the country. And, and I th so I do think there's an opportunity. Interestingly... Um, pre I didn't realise this till after I'd finished the book. Priestley absolutely thought he'd contributed to the 45 election. Apparently, if you had a drink with him, Barry Cryer told me this before he died, if you had a, a drink with Priestley, Priestley would sometimes say, like, you know, at 1945 general election, me, I did that. <laughs> he, he genuinely thought that he'd prepared the ground a lot for it. Yeah, he wasn't, he was from Yorkshire, he wasn't bashful, was he? You know what I mean? Can you do that? The, your, your first show after if Labour won the election? Yeah. On <laughs> It'll be you. Um, decency leads me really to, um, you're going to read for us briefly before we come to, there's a passage in the book which which is towards the end and it really, it talks, it does talk about the decency of, of people in this country but also the loss of decency from our overlords and masters and, and it really reflects the, the country that you were leaving behind when you set up for this yeah. journey, I guess. It's right near the end of the book, so I'll read it just quite quickly. Here we go. 
My mum and dad both passed away while I was writing and travelling for this book, within a year of each other. They both had that well-worn but precious consolation of those who pass and those who remain, the good innings. Both were in their late 80s when they grew ill. Both died in the national anacerebalis of 2021, but neither passed away from Covid, although it did make their final days harder. Mum was in a hospital after a fall, and then in the first nightmarish panic of the pandemic, in a care home, to make room, I guess, for other more pressing Covid casualties. Given that they were COVID-infested death traps at the time, it's remarkable she came out. But she did, after months of contact through erratic, halting phone conversations that even now feel heartbreaking. She wanted to be at home and could not understand why she was being kept here in this strange, sad little room. My dad, who'd probably never used the washing machine in his life, would wash and dry her nighties every few days, and I'd take them to the car home door and leave them with a masked nurse. The thought of him doing that now makes my chest hurt. She did come home, yes, but she was never the same again. Married for 62 years, but the last couple weren't easy. When she'd gone, I'm subbing this down quite a lot. When she'd gone, Dad seemed fine for a while. He even began to, uh, liberated from Mum's ultra-conservative taste in food, which regarded a tin of Heinz ravioli as being as outlandish as the rancid yak butter tea of the Mongolian steppes. He began taking his first unsteady steps into the foothills of international cuisine. Chicken tikka masala, sweet and sour pork, lasagna. Uh, and I, 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 he became ill though very quickly and I had a parent who I couldn't visit yet again until the end. While I was taking taxis and trams to drop clean nighties washed by my dad to my lonely, sad, confused mum's care home, while I was burning CDs of my dad's favourite books because he never mastered the MP3 player, to leave with an overworked nurse in the hope that he got them. While I was buying the protein drinks that were the only food he could manage, while I was not seeing them for the weeks and months that they grew sicker and lonelier, while I lay awake next to Dad and held his hand all night before that winter Saturday afternoon he died, eventually having been allowed in to see him to say goodbye. While I did all this, and maybe you did too, Downing Street was having wine time Friday. It was having ABBA parties. Braying staffers came back clanking from the off-licence with suitcases of booze and parted and fought and broke children's swings and drank themselves sick and left minimum wage cleaners to clean up their mess in the morning. All those chummy little get-togethers, illegal as well as immoral, when families could not hold their dying loved ones' hands. More breaches of the law happened at 10 Downing Street than any other address in Great Britain. 126 fines. 83 people. One of them, of course, being two, Alexander Boris Defeffel Johnson, Member of Parliament for Uxbridge and Ryslip, no longer, of course, then leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Still seems astonishing to read that sentence to me, but there you go. Stuart will be signing books next door at the Bookish. Anyone's. Hotel. Absolutely anyone's. He's hungry for it. This book, The Full English, will be there among many of his other possibly 11. Um, so it only remains for me to say thank you from me, Stuart. Thank you from Wigan. Most of all, yes. thank you from Green Man. Thank you for coming. Oh, and thank you to Laura Barton, the lovely Laura Barton.